This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Marketing Matters on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome back. I'm Professor Americus Reed, founding member of the Four Horsemen of Marketing, a.k.a. the Ric Flair of Biz Radio. Today, woo, I've got the style and profile like never before. This is Sirius XM's Business Radio Channel 132, powered, of course, by the Warden School. Barbara's out today, so you're riding shotgun with your boy AR here at the magnificent institution called Wharton. We invented the concept of the business school. We create the knowledge that they write about in their cases. We went to Wharton, and we saw you coming a mile away. Interestingly, we are not only investment bankers. We are also consultants, strategists, entrepreneurs, real estate gurus, management leaders, and, of course... Marketers, where marketing is the glue that connects each of these areas to their clients. If you like what you're hearing on Marketing Matters, we air live every Wednesday from 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and we are replayed several times throughout the week. I'm happy to welcome our next guest to the program to continue this theme on controversy and and all kinds of cool stuff going on in marketing. Uh, This is Simon Tam. Welcome to the program, sir. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have you here, sir. First of all, congratulations. You are a bassist, yes? You play bass. I am. Wow. I, yeah. Dude, I love that. That is fantastic. Uh, I dabble in a little bit of bass myself. I'm probably not as good as you are. Uh, but I love the instrument. I love music. You're going to get into how music has been kind of a, a big component of your personal brand and a lot of the great work that you're doing. Uh, but before we do that, Simon, I would like for you to take our listeners kind of through your journey. In other words, sort of give us some context, give us some color, give us some nuance with respect to like where you started and how your particular trajectory and pathway to where you are now. Tell us a little bit about your backstory. So I actually picked up the bass guitar at the age of 10, um, you know, 28 years ago. Wow. And mostly because I was like, there are too many guitar players out there and (laughs) the drums are too loud. So my parents won't let me do that. But I also was a huge fan of Guns N' Roses and Duff McKagan is amazing. Nice. Uh it, it, It worked out. And, Shortly after picking it up, I actually got really, really into this idea of like, what can I do to make music the sustainable career? So at the age of 13, I launched my first record label. Oh, wow. At the age of 15, I launched a promotional company and started booking bands that were on major labels and old wow. 70s punk groups like the Ramones and TSOL. Wow. Um, age 19, I opened up my first vintage clothing store and then kind of leveraged that to create a even more promotional partnership. Uh-huh. Um, so that that's kind of like what got me into the business of things. Like, Holy I'm moly! A kid of uh-huh. Immigrants and and my families were mm-hmm. always into opening businesses. So I think that was kind of a natural tick in my brain. Wow! Uh, and so this, so 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 you started. So yeah, this is first of all, congratulations, dude. When I was fifteen, I was in the woods sitting on a cinder block smoking weed, man. Uh, <laughs> I was not as productive as you were. Uh, you know, there's a little bit of creative embellishment there, but seriously, I mean, how, I mean, you have this entrepreneurial spirit. You were like building stuff, right? I mean, this is amazing. You were like thinking ahead and like trying to like create things at such a young age. Yes. I was trying to, yeah. I mean, I had a mentor when, when in my early teenage years and I'll never forget, he gave me this book called developing the leader within you by John C. Maxwell. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's a treasured leadership book by a lot of people now but but at the time i remember like thinking like well i've never read anything like this mm-hmm. and 
I actually, at 13, kind of made this commitment. I said, okay, wow. every single month, I'm going to read at least two books on leadership, sales, or marketing and communication mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. every month for the rest of my life. So I kind of created a leadership library. And because I kind of made that small decision and, and stuck to that commitment, I think it really helped me just start thinking about things from another perspective. Mm-hmm. Like when I followed bands that I loved, I just thought, what is it about them that makes them work? And that not just the music, but like everything else from, from the way they tour, the way they perform on stage, mm-hmm. um, you know, what's a merchandise like and how can I take these lessons and apply it into my own life or how can I help my wow. friends who are trying to struggle with the same thing? Mm-hmm. And so what's interesting, I love this. Tell me what was the big aha moment from the Maxwell book? Do you remember a specific kind of piece of advice or a specific kind of uh, strategy that was discussed? Because I love what you're doing here. You are like interfacing leadership and all of these really like sort of more broader skills into the music world, which is super interesting. Talk us a little bit through like some of these aha moments that you had in terms of when you were making these connections. Well, I think one of the key moments was uh, there's this quote that Dr. Maxwell says, which is, People don't know. Um, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, oh. and that's when I started really thinking about like no amount of marketing or awareness can help a bad product or bad music. Mm-hmm. You and and no amount of uh, marketing promotion can overcome this thing if people think you don't actually care about what they're interested in. Mm-hmm. So kind of from that early age, I started thinking like, what are the needs of my community? What do they care about? And where are the gaps? How can I how can I fulfill those needs um, in a way that nobody else is? Mm. And so that's why I started that kind of promotion company mm-hmm. uh, when I was a teenager because mm-hmm. like this is before the internet blew up and mm-hmm. no one knew how to do things like get stickers printed or, or t-shirts made. <laughs> right. And so I was like, you know what? I can outsource all of this. Uh-huh. I just put a small surcharge mm. and uh, and charge people for the convenience quick because I knew where to find those contacts. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And and so I would just kind of facilitate the exchange, uh, no matter what it was. And it just kind of worked out really nicely. And same thing with like putting on shows. I thought there are venues and they're always trying to get good bands, but a lot of the people who are starting bands don't know how to get into those venues. Mm-hmm. So how can I be that, the, wow. that the advocate for the artist while still making it profitable for the business? And so that's how I started kind of dissecting these things and figuring out little creating plans to kind of help out people. And the, the more that I did this and the more that I was on other people's radar, that the more like major label artists would be contacting me. I mean, I would have like managers from Sony Records, wow. Capitol Records, all contacting me, not knowing that I wasn't even old enough to drive yet. <laughs> like they, they just assumed because they heard from everybody mm-hmm. else and I was great to work with mm-hmm. that I could help them out. And so I was filling in tour dates left and right for all these artists. And wow. Of course, that helped me much later in life as I was trying to launch my own music career because now all these artists and managers and people had a chance to kind of pay me back, if you will. Gotcha, gotcha. And so you were creating the the goodwill, if you will. I mean, your whole approach is one of kind of being sort of aware, but also like of the social impact implications of the kinds of things that you can do as an artist and helping artists, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm a huge believer that if you help enough other people get what they want. Like you can really get everything in life you want. It's just about finding opportunities to connect with people on their values and giving them something tangible that they could really use in their life. Interesting. Yes. The karmic universe will pay you back. I love this. I mean, I love this point. It's, it's, it's a great point, Simon, because I, I think that a lot of times 
there is often a false dichotomy that happens in the world of business and giving in the sense that some – and I see this a lot of times with my students, Simon, that sometimes they feel like you know business and doing good are somehow you know uh, in conflict with each other. Like it's not possible – to, to be successful in business, but also to have social impact because business is about like, you know, maximizing profits and all these kind of more uh, cold utilitarian economic kinds of uh, ideas. But what you're saying is, no, no, what can you, you can actually marry all of these worlds, business, leadership, art and music and creativity and have like a, and social impact and have a really amazing kind of approach to how you work. Right. Absolutely. I mean, it, it goes back to that same idea. Like, demonstrate how you care. Mm -hmm. You you care about your audience. You care about your audience, your customers. They're going to take care of you. And if you find ways to kind of maximize that, like uh, look for every opportunity to surprise and delight people, then I I find that they're going to be much more excited about keeping that relationship than if you're just trying to be transactional, thinking, well, I sold them my CD. I sold them my one thing. I'm Mm going to move on to the next person. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, that's not creating a sustainable Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What I love about this is this idea that, you know, you're building relationships. Now, talk, talk a little about this notion of when did you when did you start your band? And because and all this while all this is going on, you were playing in bands, no? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I played in a number of groups for, for years. Years. But, mm-hmm. uh, but, but the main band that I started, uh, we kind of launched in late 2006. And that was a, wow. an Asian-American dance rock band called The Slants. <laughs> Okay. So but we have to okay. It took me a while to recruit, but <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Now we have to pause because it's very interesting, Simon, because when I was reading about this and sort of preparing for our segment, uh and I was reading about the bio, I it took it, I had to go back. I was like looking at the analysis around controversy. I, I didn't catch the slants thing at first, which is really <laughs> interesting. And I was like, Wow, okay, what's this is interesting. What's what's the big deal here? And then I then I it sort of dawned on me, it hit me. That oh wow this is could be potentially perceived as you know an offensive thing right so talk a little bit about the genesis of the band uh, and also you know the approach to because we're going to get into this amazing story that is part of your memoir that is out now that has to do with how the band and the desire to use this name the slants was controversial in the context of the Supreme Court of all places, right? So talk a little bit about yeah. the, the genesis of the name and a little bit of the philosophy behind choosing that as part of the brand, if you will, for the band. Sure. So the idea for the band actually came to me in the middle of a movie uh, back when Kill Bill first appeared <laughs> on DVD, so April 2004. Yes. I was watching this in my apartment. Uh-huh. And, you know, as it starts, it's a, your typical Tarantino film. So it's it's clever, well-written. But there's this one particular scene mm. where a woman named Orni, she walks <laughs> into this restaurant mm-hmm. with her gang of Crazy 88s or the Asian mafia that she led. Mm-hmm. And now to anybody else, this is just another trademark Tarantino scene. But for me, it was the first time that I had ever seen an American-produced film that showed Asians as cool confident and sexy interesting and i didn't have any of those social mirrors growing up like the only characters i saw in movies were like characters like long duck dong and 16 candles <laughs> or actors like mickey rooney taping his eyes back and making it like a ridiculous accent so yes mm-hmm. the, the fact that i got actually saw this was really really powerful mm-hmm. and then i started thinking about music the art that i lived and breathed since i was a kid mm-hmm. thinking wow there's Almost 18 million Asian Americans in this country, and not one has ever been on Rolling Stone, 
pitchfork, spin magazine, or anything else. And so that night, I decided something needed to change. Wow. I wanted to provide this bold betrayal of Asian American culture. So mm -hmm. that's when the idea was born. But of course, we know like band 101, if you, <laughs> if you want to have a band, you got to have a name. Yes. So I started asking all of my friends in, in Portland, where I was living, hey, what's something you think all Asian people have in common? Mm -hmm. Time and time again, people would say slanted mm -hmm. eyes, which, <laughs> wow, you know, I thought it's interesting because like, number one, it's not true. Like, yes. Not all Asian people have slanted eyes. We're not the only people on earth with a slant to our eyes. <laughs> but I always associated slanted eyes with shame because mm. I was violently bullied as a kid. Oh. And, and and it was these eyes. It was my, my sh like the shape of my face. It was all those things that made me really like feel this profound sense of embarrassment every wow. time people brought it up. Mm -hmm. And because Asians are the most bullied group in America, I knew I couldn't have been alone. So I thought, why don't we kind of take this, turn it around and make it associated with pride and self-empowerment mm. instead, mm -hmm. all while singing about our perspective or our slant in life, if you will, <laughs> what it's like to be Asian. And in and, and, and so doing, like reappropriating this really outdated and really kind of obscure mm. uh, racial slur or, or stereotype. And so what's super interesting about this, Simon, I love this. First of all, I want to thank you for sharing your story. It's an amazing story. Uh, and it often is the time that from difficult moments come uh, opportunities to do great things. So so I appreciate you sharing that with uh, myself and my listeners. I love this idea, though, that the, the, you use the word social mirrors. And so this notion that, you know, we are a reflection from an identity perspective. We are a reflection uh, societally about how others see us. And so this notion that you wanted to make a movement, you wanted to take the art, the music, and have a bold portrayal, as you said, uh, to sort of flip this thing on its head and like, let's find out a way to to create a source of empowerment around this. And we're going to have, does the band's songs actually, is there a connection between the lyrics of the songs and this kind of idea? Or is it just, tell me a little bit about the band itself, because it sounded like when you started the band, it had a very, very clear social impact mission. Well, you know, for me, I just wanted to provide representation. So we didn't initially begin this, this social political project. Mm -hmm. It was more like, hey, let's let's get out there. And so, um, you, you know, to, so that we can actually provide that representation that mm. we saw lacking. But within two months of launching this thing, I started getting all these letters from kids from throughout the country, both like actual physical letters and messages on myspace.com, which lets you know how far back this thing goes. Mm -hmm. And and the kids would be saying, thank you. Thank you for existing. Thank you for showing wow. me that I could be something else. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I was very outspoken about my own like experiences being bullied. And mm -hmm. they would say, like, thank you for sharing these stories and letting me know it gets better. Once I started receiving these letters, I knew we had a social responsibility because kids were coming to me with actual like traumatic experiences. Mm. So to kind of wrestle with this and, and knowing that I would be held to the standard, whether we wanted it or not, I started enrolling in classes on anti-racism work oh, wow. and on counseling so I could actually help the kids who are coming to us with these like suicidal thoughts or who are just being attacked at school mm -hmm. or, or when we worked with organizations that wanted to do outreach for the Asian American community, but didn't really know how to do it. So like we kind of get, got tapped into all of these roles, even though that wasn't 
what I initially set out to do. Mm -hmm. And as we started doing this more and more, we started incorporating more of those ideas into our music. Now, some of our songs are just kind of generally about life experiences, like relationships, like any other band. But some of the other songs have very clear messages of like standing up for a community and, 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 you know, trying to essentially create anthems for, for people to hold on to that could celebrate their identity and their cultural heritage. Mm-hmm. And so what I, what I love about this, though, Simon, is the fact that for, let, first, let me reintroduce you to our listeners. Uh, we are speaking with Simon Tam, uh, and he is an author, musician, activist and certified troublemaker. Tam is best known as the, I love that. I love it. You're a rebel, man. I, I'm telling you, dig in your vibe, man. Uh, but Simon is best known to as the founder of a basis for the band called The Slants, the world's first and only all Asian American dance rock band. He's the founder of The Slants Foundation, an organization dedicated to providing scholarships and mentorship to artists, activists of color. And listen to this. He's been a keynote speaker, performer, and presenter at TEDx, South by Southwest, Comic-Con, to name a few, the Department of Defense, Stanford University, over 1,200 events across four continents. He has set the world record in total number of TEDx appearances with 12. Amazing. We have him on the phone. If you want to join the conversation with myself and Simon Tam, please give us a call at 844-WARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Now, Simon, I love this idea that you're describing because you are you're infusing all of these things, the work that you've done uh, with President Barack Obama in the past, this hashtag act to change, this campaign to fight bullying. You've done all this work as part of the brand that you're building, your personal brand and the brand of the band. Talk a little bit about how that strategic decision to build the social justice piece uh, became a way to kind of differentiate what you were doing from other things that were out there. I think when I initially started, I, I didn't really think of it as as that or, as, you know, like a lot of companies would treat it as like this strategic philanthropy effort. It was more like I was just responding to the audiences and, and the needs that I was hearing from them. Uh, but once we decided to kind of pick up this mantle, I, I, I started thinking, like, what are the values that w- we want to be able to communicate with other people? Like, what are the core things that we represent? Mm-hmm. How can we do so both on and off stage? And as part of that, I realized that a lot of our work actually was beyond just the stage and studio. Mm-hmm. It was volunteering for organizations. It was fundraising for other charities. And it was trying to like use our, our platform as, as influencers to kind of provide that voice for our community. And one of the great things that I started realizing is that the more you give to the community, the more you kind of get back. Like mm-hmm. you get back far more than you could ever give to other people when you're, when you're generous, when you're, when you're sincere about it. And so that's how all these opportunities opened up. Like the White House and the Department of Defense called us only after we were pouring out um, support for our community for many years. You know, they watched us do work like kind of get out to vote um, Mm -hmm. campaigns where we helped increase voter participation in the Pacific Northwest, Mm -hmm. where they saw how we raised enough money to rescue a family of refugees from North Korea. Like All these things built up all this kind of goodwill within our community that when the time came for the the really big opportunities, people said, well, of course, use this band. They've been consistent. They've been frequently contributing to our community. And like it, it allowed us to build this like solid reputation with a very, very um, solid body of work behind it. This is an amazing story. Uh, Simon, I want you to definitely spend a little bit of time now talking about 
the the band and the controversy associated with the band and your journey with the Supreme Court? So in 2009, uh, a friend of mine who's an attorney recommended that I apply to register uh, for our trademarks. Mm -hmm. It's something that's actually very common for bands to do. Mm -hmm. um, You know, as you're out in the headlines, you want to make sure that other bands aren't hijacking your same name Mm -hmm. and using it on their own. Mm -hmm. In fact, I actually ran into a situation where that happened. Oh, really? Yeah, actually two other bands, one in Arizona, (laughs) one in Colorado, both started calling themselves the Slants. And I only knew about it because fans bought tickets to the wrong band. (laughs) And when I tried to, like, straighten it out with the Uh venue, the venue refused to give them their money back. Oh, interesting. Interesting. My friend's like, you got to actually apply for this trademark. Uh uh Now, sorry to interrupt this, Simon. Were these these just, like, uh, copy bands? Because they they had heard about you and your your band's success, and they said, we're just going to straight up copy it, right? You know, I, I'm not exactly sure. Like, they weren't Asian bands. They, the oh, they were. sounded totally different. <laughs> wow. So I'm, I'm not sure if it's just gotcha. that mm-hmm. is like a pretty common phrase or because they, they saw this momentum behind our band. I'm, mm. I'm not exactly sure. Mm-hmm. But, you know, whatever the situation is, like you just can't go calling yourself the same name as somebody else. Like people shouldn't go around calling themselves the Beatles. Mm. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. That, that things, I mean, these things exist for a reason and that's to make sure that fans don't get confused. Right. So I was like, okay, applying for a trademark seems like a good idea. Uh, The problem is a few months after we applied, the trademark office comes back to us and says, you can't register this Lance because that name is disparaging or offensive to Asian people. Wow. And of course I was like, wait, we're Asian people. <laughs> don't, you know, most of our audience, uh-huh. most of the work we've been doing for two years uh-huh. was in the Asian community. So mm-hmm. I was like, where, where are they getting this information from? And sorry, and to make sure, I, make sure I have this right, Simon, what was the governmental agency and or body that made this uh, declaration to you and your band? That was the U.S. Trademark Office. Okay, the U.S. so the U.S. Trademark Office says we are not going to register this because – register this name because we believe it is offensive. That's what they said to you. Yes. Wow. Yeah, they're using an old provision of law um, called Section 2A of the Lanham Act. Basically, it was written in the 1940s. <laughs> it says you can't register stuff that the government thinks might be scandalous, immoral, or disparaging. Interesting. Mm-hmm. The funny thing is for them to be able to justify a, like a denial, they have to find what's called a, like a substantial composite of the group to be offended. So mm. they would, in this case, have to find a ton of Asian people who are upset by our name. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The problem is they didn't find a single one. <laughs> because they, all, of your, all, of the, all of the Asian fans were understanding of what the whole premise of the brand's band, the band's brand was all about, right, Simon? Yeah, they were they were in our corner. They were supportive. Like yeah. we already demonstrated all that great work and community uh, partnerships. So the only thing they could find was an UrbanDictionary.com entry, hmm. and <laughs> and that's what they used. Wow! And so that set us off on a very long path to try and appeal it, which is the weirdest thing in the world. Because like if you think about it, uh-huh. how would you try and prove you're not offensive to yourself? <laughs> Like, that's, a, 
you know. <laughs> That's interesting. That's very interesting because you've got 18 million uh, Asian Americans out there. And so, I mean, what, what, what was the idea? Like, we're going to just start producing testimonials? I mean, what was, how did, how, I mean, and first of all, like, why is the burden of proof on you and your band, I guess, is another question. Uh, well, illegally speaking, the burden of proof is actually on the trademark office. But because they made this accusation, they flipped it around to us. And it's a weird thing because it's a lot easier to prove something is offensive than that it's not offensive. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so we did do things like, as you mentioned, got testimonials. So they're called legal declarations, which is kind of like an affidavit. And we got many of those signed by executive directors of nonprofit organizations that work in Asian Americans and social justice. We got those. We got academics, so uh, professors, including a linguistics expert who wrote a 70-page paper on the history of the term slant saying, no, these guys aren't offensive, but it's actually more often not the the term is used in a self-empowering kind of way. Mm. Uh, We got organizers from from other people who use slant in this kind of positive way, uh, like the Slant Film Festival, which was the second biggest Asian-American film festival in the country. And slant tv and slanted kings of comedy tour all derided and say like look we're all using the name we have no problems no one's ever complained um and we also did two independent national surveys like scientific surveys conducted uh which was a first like no one who was rejected under this law had ever done a survey before interesting so it became the biggest appeal in u.s history like in fact the the appeal was so large like there's so many like pages to this thing, I was actually worried about how much it would cost to get scanned at Kinko. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, my attorney is like, you know what? I think wow. we should pay for shipping. Like, put this in a in a giant box, mm-hmm. send it to the trademark office, so that they have to hand scan every one of these pages. Interesting. So, of course, I was like, yeah, I'll go have these on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we we send this in, and they said it's not good enough. They, oh. they called our effort laudable but not influential. <laughs> wow. That is amazing. Laudable, but not influential. Wow. Yeah, and so, so what, what did you do at that point? Yeah. What did you do at that point, Simon? Well, um, at that point, my, my attorney was burnt out and so decided he needed to step back from law. So oh. I found another lawyer, one who ran a blog called likelihoodofconfusion.com, which mm. is kind of like a trademark geek blog. Mm. And he seemed pretty sharp. So he reached out to him and he agreed to take the case on pro bono. But Mm. he says, as long as you fight like this, you're not going to win. Because it turns out no one in the entire history since this law has been around for about 70 years uh, has ever won on appeal if they were accused of violating this law. Gotcha. So the the government said, you can always appeal, but what they don't tell you is you can never win. Mm. So he says, let's change our strategy here. He says, let's go ahead and reapply. This time we will not tell them it's for an Asian ban because hmm. plant means a lot of different things. Maybe oh. they'll just think of like a <laughs> kind of benign, ordinary word, right. not associated with you and, and rubber stamp it through. We, <laughs> we reapply. Wow. And the trademark office gives us the exact same attorney uh, who basically copies and pastes previous rejection. Oh, okay. And okay. So it was a clever thought, actually, but it didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. But in doing so, they actually broke their own rules mm. because according to their procedures manual, uh-huh. 
you're actually supposed to do a fresh search to see the context of the trademark mm. uh, to see if it's changed. And he didn't actually do that. So we started appealing on these like very procedural and evidentiary-based issues. And then meanwhile, we found out that the government didn't have a problem with slant before. Mm-hmm. There were over 800 other trademarks registered with the term slant. Mm-hmm. So we're like, why why this ban? What, what's up with this ban? But yet everyone else who's ever applied for this thing is, has been okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's when the government said that we were actually too Asian. Oh, wow. <laughs> this is this goes from bad to just bizarre. This is amazing. It, but the, yes, their, their exact words were, it is incontestable that the applicant is Asian and part of an Asian band. So it, it basically, their logic was, well, if you go to the slants.com and you see those words, Look at the faces next to them. How could anyone not think of racial slur? Mm-hmm. But that's a more convoluted way of saying anyone can register the slants as long as they're not Asian. Mm-hmm. So in, in a sense, to fight against racial discrimination, they were actually discriminating <laughs> against me racially. Right. Interesting. And we, we challenged this on and on for, for a few more years. Wow. Eventually, it went before the U.S. Supreme Court, and the court decided, hold on a second, let's take a step back and decide, is this law even constitutional, Mm. or does it violate the First Amendment? Mm -hmm. And that's where we argued, yeah, we think it's unconstitutional because it's an abridgment of freedom of speech. Mm. Interesting. And so the Supreme Court ruled in the slant's favor, yes? Unanimously in our favor, yeah. That's amazing. I mean, this is incredible. I mean, this is like what band in history has ever had this kind of event happen to them? This is amazing stuff, Simon. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's funny because I, a lot of times people are like, well, did you ever imagine it would happen and all this? But I'm like, how does anyone think Oh, I'm going to go to the Supreme Court because I want to name my band the Slam. <laughs> <laughs> like, no one, no one can predict any of this. No one can predict just, any of this. Yeah, you just we're just trying to take it one step at a time, and we were very perhaps naive in thinking, oh, let's just register this trademark; everything's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. We didn't realize it would that it could even be controversial because we never received a single complaint. Mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. it only became an issue once the government made a big deal out of it. Gotcha, gotcha. I love this because this is pointing to the power we've been talking about in this program today, Simon, the idea of activism and, and controversy and how all of these things play into the role of, of marketing and business leadership and, and branding and things of that nature. So this is an amazing, absolutely amazing story. Uh, and I'm so glad that you shared it with us because I think that the, one of the major points here is that when you when you do something in business that tries to infuse this caring aspect, this uh, desire to, to impact others in a positive way, you're actually creating a lot of great goodwill for your brand. And so you're setting yourself up to have a deeper connection and set of relationships with your consumers. Simon Tam, thanks so much for coming on the show tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Excellent. Listeners, you can find more about Simon at, wait for it, theslants.com. <laughs> you can also follow him on Twitter at Simon the Tam 
one word. And listeners, if you are enjoying this as a podcast, remember that our show, Marketing Matters, airs live on Sirius XM, channel 132, here every Wednesday from 5 to 7 p.m., but we're also replayed Saturdays at midnight, Sundays, uh, 8 to 10 p.m., and Mondays, 2 to 4 a.m. Uh, when we come back, I'm taking your calls right after this on Marketing Matters. Get your questions ready. one 844 Wharton is the number. That's 844-942-7866. Business Radio powered by Wharton on Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 